All right, so how many of you remember that movie? Yeah, that's a classic. 1963, I was at the ripe old age of nine years old when that came out. And uh, I don't think I watched it when I was nine, but how many times I watched it since then. A great story about a group of RAF pilots and other United Kingdom personnel who had been captured in World War II and held captive by the Germans. And this group of men collectively were great escape artists. And so the Germans created a special prison camp just for them super fortified to keep them inside. They put a guy in charge that was ruthless um, in keeping these prisoners there. And they got there, and the first thing they started doing was bemoaning and saying, we'll never get out of here. Nope. The first thing they did was, how can we get out? How can we escape? And the movie goes on and talks about how they dug three tunnels, Tom, Dick, and Harry, and uh, unfortunately, the, the tunnel was a little bit short when they discovered that. It was too late. And about, they planned for 200 of them to get out. Can you imagine that? 200 in one night. About, oh, somewhere around 70 got out. Uh, 51 were later executed. Three actually made it uh, to safety. But the bottom line is they just refused to stay in prison. They made it their goal. They knew the, the goal, the purpose, the driving force of every prisoner of war was to escape. And I want you to know this, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your driving force, not that you're a prisoner of war, but your driving force, your driving purpose should always be to seek to escape from temptation. And the great part is, while we have a great adversary stronger than any German prison camp, we have a greater God. And this great God enables us, gives us weapons, gives us intelligence, um, gives us wisdom on how we can defeat this one called Satan. Now, we want to spend today, we're going to look at five scriptures, and I'm going to stay as close as I can right on target with you so we can get all five in. But we'll look at five different scriptures, five different ideas, five different concepts that deal with defeating Satan and temptation. This is our last message in our Sweet Temptation series, and I want to tell you I'm glad. I'm glad because I want to look you dead in the eye. Just like God arranged for that great shoebox to be there, I can certify with you with certainty, and some of you came with me, that Satan did not like this series. And he has been attacking. He's put different situations in my life that have been very difficult to deal with. Certain temptations are very hard to deal with. I come away with a greater realization, one, just how real he is, two, how great God is, and three, I'm not as strong as I thought I was, that I needed this. Sometimes we preachers preach from abundance. Sometimes we preach because there's a certain circumstance we need to address, like the League Day Tornado. And sometimes we preach out of need. And I didn't realize how much I needed this series until today. Now, four of the five scriptures today deal with the church at Corinth. And I think that's very significant. Um, As you'll notice, if you've looked around, every once in a while you'll see a Baptist church named Corinth. Corinth Baptist Church. There's one in Judy down by Valdosta. I know there's one down there. But you don't normally see churches like Baptist churches named Corinth or Methodist Church, Corinth Methodist Church. And there's a reason why. The same reason you don't name your daughter Jezebel and the same reason you you don't don't name your your, um, sons Benedict is because of the name association. And the church at Corinth, yes, they were in a difficult situation, But the church at Corinth really wrestled with spirituality. 
They really wrestled with them. They're the ones, if you look at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and there was a third book that did not get, you know, make it into the Bible that was lost that Paul references the third letter. So there, there were, if you look at those three letters, most of them are corrective in nature. Um, the Corinthian church was a very prideful church, and that went along with the culture of Corinth. as a very proud city. This was the church that abused the Lord's Supper, and Paul spent a lot of time telling them how they should do the Lord's Supper. This was a church that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 had a guy committing sin that was so immoral that even the culture looked and said, we can't believe that it's incurring. I'll let you read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This was a church that abused the spiritual gifts. Um, this is a church that had a hard time loving and forgiving people. So this was a church that was in very difficult straits spiritually. And frankly, that's a lot like the Western culture today. Um, so I think this is a very appropriate message today. As we look at these scriptures today, all but the last one found in First and Second Corinthians and deal with how can we, how can we be greater overcomers over our adversary, the devil? So we begin today in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, verses 6 to 11, and I've entitled this War College. War College. I'll explain that in just a minute. Then we have what I call the great escape, and that's 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. Then I have intelligence, and that is 2 Corinthians 2, 11. And then we have weaponry. What weapons do we use? That's 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And then lastly, we have beware 2, T-O-O, and I'll explain that in just a moment, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27. So let me explain War College. As you know, I spent, well, most of you know, I spent 12 years in the Air Force and um, learned, of course, a lot about the military and defense system. And one of the things that, that the defense system, notice I said not just the Air Force, but the, the service do, is they have a, a college, an institution, an institute called the War College. And this is where senior officers, usually major and above, go. And the, all the Air Force, the Army, the Coast Guard, all the guys get together at this War College. And one of the things they do is they take a look at history. And they see the adversaries that the United States has faced. They look at enemy leaders and how their strategies were. And then they look at battles that were lost, uh, invasions that didn't work, all for the purpose of teaching these senior officers looking at the adversary and at history of how they could be better leaders. That is exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. Now, this is one of those messages I want you to know I feel is very appropriate, very applicable to our lives. So because we've learned this time the, the reality of Satan, that he's not a figment of our imagination, he's not a cartoon character, he's a very real adversary, and that he has millions, perhaps, of demons who follow after him. Um, we've learned that God is certainly greater than Satan, that Satan is not omnipresent, he's not uh, omnipotent, uh, he's not omniscient, he doesn't know everything, but he's a, a strong adversary. So hopefully you've taken all of that and then applying it to how can we overcomers. We also learned the consequence of sin. We should want to be victorious because of the fact that it's, it's obedience to God, that God is worthy of that obedience. But understand, sin has consequences. And sin, listen now, I hope you take this home. Sin always complicates your life. 
When the temptation comes, if he's very smooth, much the smooth operator, and he'll make it seem like there are no consequences, that you deserve the pleasure that sin will bring, that the consequences won't be that great. He wants you to sin, so he will downplay the consequences. But sin always complicates your life. I rarely find someone who says, yeah, I took a detour from God, and I did this, this, and this, and it was great, and it's just a wonderful part of my life. Usually there's regret and remorse. Sometimes those consequences are very long-lasting. Sometimes they're lighter, but often they impact us for a lifetime. So Paul begins with the Corinthian church and teaches them about the past. Here's what he says. Look at verse number 6. I think this is very, very insightful. Now, these things took place, what, what he's been writing about the, and what he's fixing to write about. These things take place as examples or took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul says one of the reasons, what he's fixing to talk about, one of the reasons this is included, now this is powerful, one of the reasons this is included in the Word of God that somehow I didn't get lost in. Have you ever thought about that? If you were writing a biography of American history, wouldn't you at least be tempted to leave out some of the junk, the Clinton scandals and, and that garbage, you know, uh, uh, you know um, all the presidents who had affairs, and boy, were there plenty of them. Wouldn't you just kind of be tempted to leave that stuff out if you're writing your own history? I mean, if you were an American historian, wouldn't you want to make America look as good as possible? You might leave that stuff out. Have you ever noticed that God didn't do that? That God included some horrible, horrendous failures, both by individuals and by his people. And Paul says they're there for our examples that we may not desire evil even as they did. Look what it says in verse 11. They tie together. Now, these things happen to them as an example. This is good. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Key in on, but they were written down for our instruction. Isn't it great to know we have a God that designed his word for our good and benefit? Remember, remember we pray it often now, for God, um, for our good and your glory? Isn't it great that God designed his word for, for our good, for our edification? So, so we look at, there are four things, starting in verse number seven, that Paul says, now you've got to be aware of this. And I think they apply so much in our lives. Look at verse number seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this references Exodus chapter 32. This is the point where the Israelites were camping and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to commune with God, to talk with God, and the process gets the Ten Commandments. While he is gone, and he's gone quite a while, the people get restless. And so they begin to want to um, sin against God. And they go to Aaron and say, look, this man Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So why don't you make us a God so we can have a God, a new God to worship? Now, I think the key thought for us is here. They, more than depending on God, look to Moses for leadership. And when that man disappeared, they started worshiping another God. You've got to be very careful in this world that you do not worship your religion, that you do not worship pastors, that you do not worship churches, and you don't worship yourself. Because when you, when you turn your attention off of the one true God, that will lead to an indulgence of sin. 
And so you know the story. If you ever watched the Ten Commandments or read in the Word of God, you know, um, you know they're coming down off the mountain. Uh, Joshua and Moses are coming down off the mountain. They say, Joshua says, I hear the sound of war. And Moses says, that's not the sound of war. That's a sound of people in sin. And they get down there and they're committing all this debauchery and all this sexual sin and worshiping and dancing, worshiping this, this false idol. And the Bible says when that happened, they rose up to play. Many of them died. Interesting. So, so be careful what you worship. Be careful that nothing replaces God. Not your wife, not your children, not your job, not your career, not your religion, not your pastor, not your church. Nothing must replace God. Because when you start worshiping something else, when that something else disappears, you'll turn into deeper sin. Amen? You got that? Now look at verse number 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And this is when the Israelites were camping at the Archaic Grove. And they stayed there a while. And there were Moabites. And Moabites worshipped Baal. And apparently the, the Moabite women were pretty good looking. And perhaps flirtatious, I don't know. But the bottom line is, the Israelite men begin having sexual relations and relations with the Moabite women. So one, they sin there. And guess what happened when they sin? They started worshiping another god. And all of a sudden, the god of Baal became their god. And then what did God do? God sent judgment upon them. And as the Bible says, 23,000 people died that day. What's in it for us? Once again, you think, we think often that, hey, what's a little sin? We have such a light attitude about sin. Now, maybe not about the mega bombs, maybe not about adultery, although it's amazing to me how many people can sin sexually and it doesn't seem to bother them. It just somehow we excuse it away. We, we have an older couple, and they don't seem problem living together because they're older. All those rules about sexual purity and stuff, that's for the teenagers because they can't handle it. Friend, you're kidding yourself. Sex outside of marriage is a sin no matter how old you are. It is wrong. It is wrong. And so, and so we have this, this going on, okay, and, and that ties it in with us. And what we do is when we excuse our sin away, we start worshiping another God. Have you ever noticed, there's a couple reasons why, but have you noticed how it is that when people start living in some kind of a sin, they have a real tendency to head to the door? Because it's hard to be in a spiritual environment and live in habitual sin. Now, some people are amazingly able to do it, and I still don't understand that, but they're able to come. We've seen preachers, famous preachers, who are having all kind of crazy sin going on in their life and still were able to stand up in the pulpit and preach. It's crazy. It is crazy. But understand this, that when sin comes in, you're going to have a tendency to let go of the real God. And God's going to judge that. And he did, in this case, with 23,000 people dying. Then we have verse number 9. We must not, Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. And this is back when, and we think it's kind of funny, but it was not. You know, they were in the desert. It's crazy. You know, God parts the Red Sea. You know, the, the army's... The army is drowned. The Pharaoh's army is drowned. And we've seen all these great miracles happen. And they no more get out there in the desert. And what do they do? They start whining. There is no food to eat. There is no water to drink. In fact, all we have, literally, all we have is this wretched manna. 
And manna was God's provision for the people of Israel while they're in the desert. All they had to do for all those years was walk out in the desert. And seriously, it's almost, I think it describes it as a honey loaf, a sweet-tasting wafer. And all they had to do, Brent, is go out and pick it up. That's all they had to do. And, and the big sin here was is that they loathed the provision of God, that God provided for them, but, ooh, but what God provided was not good enough. Can I have an amen there? How often is that true? You know, Dave, you said this. If you've got Christ, we have other stuff to be thankful for, brother. But if we've got grace, if we've got Christ, if we've got forgiveness, that is enough. That is enough. God has more than abundantly provided for his people, particularly in this wonderful area of his grace. But they loathe the provision of God. Warning, Paul says. We've got to be careful that we don't loathe the provision of God. And what happened then? This is when God sent the fiery serpents. And the serpent would bite the people and they would die. And they went to Moses and said, we have messed up. And so God said, make a bronze serpent. And when they look upon the serpent in faith, then, then they'll be healed. And Jesus said, referencing that, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up like Moses did the serpent in the wilderness, I will draw them into me. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And then the last one is this. Verse 10. Nor should we grumble. Hmm, I thought this was kind of humorous. Nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, the people of Israel, this doesn't reference one particular thing, but several. They just had a tendency to be unthankful. They just had a tendency to grumble. When they would go to Moses, we don't want you to lead us. They go to Aaron, we don't want you to lead us. You're, you're bad leaders, and God's a bad God, and, and God don't, and God didn't, and you did, and you didn't. And they would just grumble. And the Word of God says that they were destroyed by the destroyer. And do you see that decapitalized? That was, you know, the Jewish rabbis associated the fact that there was an angel of death. We see it referenced in the Old Testament. And apparently Paul believed in that. This was not Satan acting. The destroyer in this case was not Satan. It was God acting in judgment. So he says, y'all be really careful. Don't be idolaters. Don't, don't exist in sexual immorality. Be careful of that. Don't, don't loathe the provision of God. And don't grumble. Don't grumble. And again, the grumbling is against God himself. Paul says these are things that we need to learn from. Now, they were appropriate when they happened back in the Old Testament. They were appropriate in the Corinthian church. And guess what? It's appropriate today. It's appropriate today. So we must learn from the past. Those who do not learn from the past are destined to repeat it. Repeat it. So the first thing is this, acknowledge what God teaches us, learn from the past so we don't have to go through the consequences of God's discipline and judgment and the consequences of sin, all right? Then he leads into the great escape. I love this scripture. Look what it says. Verse number 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He begins with a statement about pride. Now, again, a big deal. They were so proud. They were so proud. They were proud of the spiritual gifts that they exercised. They were proud of themselves as a church. And so Paul says, now listen, take heed. If you're proud, 
Take heed lest you fall. And one more time before we leave the series, let me say it. If you're sitting there today and you're saying, yeah, I've got this thing mastered. Satan can't mess with me. I won't fall. I won't sin. Someone else may, but I won't. Oh, my gosh. Like I said earlier three weeks ago, put a bullseye on your chest. Because, man, take heed lest you fall. I don't care how long you've been saved or how recently you've been saved. I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care what title you've got in front of your name. If it says pastor, senior pastor, associate pastor, Sunday school teacher, deacon, trustee, I don't care what it says. When you reach a point in your life when you think you're above temptation and sin, watch out. Because that is nothing more than self-independence from God. And when we walk away from God and say, we can, we can, we can. You remember Peter? All these other disciples, now they will leave you, but not me. And Jesus said, uh, hello, before the cock crows three times. Or cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. So be aware. And here's what he says. This is just way good and powerful. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Read it again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, there's two things I want to bring out of this that I think are hugely important. The first off is this. You are not unique. If you're sitting there today, and I, and I, I pick on pe- sexual sin because it's such one we justify in America. But regardless, if you're angry today, If you're harboring unforgiveness in your life today, if you slept last night with someone who's not your wife or your husband, if you're living in in an immoral relationship, and I was to come to you, probably it would be something like this. Dwayne, you don't know my story. Pastor, you don't know my story. See, my story is special. My story is one of a kind. Um, There's a Greek word for that. Uh Uh-uh. Because the Bible says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, someone has walked where you have. We learned that Jesus was tempted at all points like we as we are, yet without sin. And we looked at those three three temptations in, in 1 John. But you are not unique to your situation. So don't soothe your conscience today. If you know there's unconfessed sin in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, don't try to soothe your conscience with, yeah, but you don't understand. Because God says that someone else has walked where you have. Now, there's something else, too. Let me read one more time. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, somewhere out in that world, someone has gone through what you're going through. Let me give you a word of warning. Because in that temptation where it says, such as common to man, that means that out there all these temptations are. And there are people who succeeded and there are people who failed. For every sin temptation somewhere out there, there's someone as a believer in Christ who succeeded and there's someone who failed. And the very confident good thing that God intends for us, that is there's no temptation taking you, but just common man can be used against you also by Satan. It all depends on who you look at. What example are you going to look at? When you're being tempted, you can look at at Deacon Joe and say, boy, I've heard Joe's story. And Joe was 
tempted just like I was. And I, he told me how he turned to the word of God and how it was difficult to resist that temptation. But he did by the power of God. I'm going to follow Joe. Or there's Deacon John. Maybe I shouldn't use deacons. <laughs> Sorry, boys. <laughs> Not intentional. But let's look at John. And John failed. And John, as a deacon or as a teacher, as a pastor, didn't succeed. He came in. He imploded upon himself. Divorced his wife. Left his children. Um, lost his career because of indiscretion. Who are you going to look at? If you look at Joe over here, you'll be encouraged not to sin. If you look at John, you'll be encouraged to sin. If he did it, I should be able to do it. If, if the pastor did it, if the associate pastor did it, if my Sunday school teacher did it, you, you want a good reason why we should be good examples? That's it. We're either going to be an example to help people not to sin or cause people to stumble. So be careful. Be careful when you're tempted to look at the right example. You know, when you're being tempted to divorce your husband, and everybody knows he's a jerk, who are you going to listen to? Because believe me, there are plenty of people in church who say, divorce the jerk. That may not be scriptural. In fact, it's probably not. So you're going to listen to the ladies at the water cooler who say, well, honey, you deserve better than this. If I, if I was married to him, I'd kill him. But then you have to go to prison, so I won't kill him, but I'd sure leave him. Or maybe there's someone over here who would say, you know what? I think you should follow God's word. I know that's hard. Don't you dare think your pastor will know about hard. I know about hard. I'm just saying, when you are faced with that temptation, be careful the example you choose to follow. There's both kinds out there. So there's no temptation taking you, but such as common demand. Listen, God is faithful. Somebody say amen. God is faithful. God is faithful. And notice, by the way, you need to be faithful, but God's faithful for you. So as you face this temptation, you understand you've got a faithful God. Someone say faithful God. We've got a faithful God acting on our behalf. In fact, we're going to learn this morning that we don't have to face this stuff. We can't face this stuff on our own. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. There's two great truths there. God is not going to let. God is not going to let. God will not let you be tempted above what you're able. And that's not in the flesh. That's in the power of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Applies to temptation, overcoming temptation. So the good news is you really do have a sovereign God who's watching out. And I believe my heart. Again, we see it with Job. We saw it with Peter when, when Jesus said, you know, Satan's asked to sift you as wheat, but I pray for you. You take this illustration home. Imagine the biggest, meanest junkyard dog you can imagine. I mean a big one. And I mean a mean one. Imagine a logging chain around that dog's neck. And that chain leads to the most powerful man you can imagine. That's God. That's Satan. And Satan is not going to move beyond what God approves. That's scriptural. Read the book of Job. 
Look at what Peter said. Our God is in control. Satan does not have free reign. He would, listen, let me just prove that to you. If Satan had free reign, do you really think you'd be alive today? If, you, if Satan had free reign, then as soon as you got saved, he'd strike you with cancer and kill you. You wouldn't be sitting here. You'd be dead. You know why you're still here? Because of the sovereignty of God. Because our God is greater than that adversary. That's why you're still here. So God is not going to let... When you sit here saying, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. God won't let you be put in a situation where you can't bear it with Him. Come on now, with Him. But look what else it says. That He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Not only is God in control, God's going to make the great escape possible. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, are we going to endure or enjoy? Are we going to endure or indulge? See, the problem is, and you know this, and I, I don't want to stand on the stage by myself and admit this, so I'll put David and Brent in the same boat, every pastor. You know, we're tempted like you are. And there's sometimes when it's very tempting to indulge, to enjoy. And then there's times when we have the strength. God's word says he will give us an escape. and He'll give us the power. We don't have to give in. We collectively as the body of Christ. So God is sovereign. And my goodness, you remember the movie? Some of y'all remember the movie Matrix. Look for the door. When Satan comes and he's tackling you and knocking at your man, you head for the exit. In fact, Paul says that in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from adultery. Sometimes the best thing you can do is run. Run. God will provide the way of escape. But you've got to decide you want out of there. Again, too often with sin... We're there to enjoy it. We enjoy our sin way too much. Whether it's being mad at you because you said something or unforgiving because I was hurt or wounded or whether it's the mega bomb. It doesn't matter. We enjoy sin too much. Sometimes it just feels good when I can hold something over your head or you can hold something over my head. Hate sin. Love God. Hate sin. Love God. Hate sin. Just remind you, it was sin that nailed the man you love, Jesus Christ. To this cross. It was sin. So the great escape is, listen, he will provide a way. And and you're not going to be tempted beyond what you're able. He won't allow it. Because with him, all things are possible. Now, that leads us into intelligence. You know, they say one of the greatest oxymorons in the English language is military intelligence. You know, it just doesn't go together. Um, but I want to just key in on one part in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Grab this. It's very, again, it's very important, though it's short. I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, because of time, I'm not going to explain the contents of that. I want you to grab and take hold of that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. I mean, my, my goodness, don't you understand how conniving he is? Now, again, if you're going to play basketball, you need to know the rules. If you're going to play football, which I wish, by the way, Notre Dame would do, um, they seem intent on being Christian about this whole football thing and giving games to the other team. They're very generous these days. 
It's just frustrating. But, but you've got to know the rules. If you're going to be a good strategist in war, you've got to know the rules. The best thing, Pat, Pat knew this. You've got to know the enemy. Now, look at me. This is so simple. And you said, Dwayne, I've heard this before. Move on to something new. This whole book is a revelation of God, but also the schemes of Satan. Every secret weapon he's got, you can read about in here. It started with, you will not surely die. Lying. You will not surely die. This, listen, guys, we've got to move beyond the 45-minute message on Sunday morning being our word for the week. We have got, as believers, to get back in this book on a daily basis. I'm telling you, there is power in the word of God. It may save you, sir, sir, sir. It may save you today from destroying your marriage. Students, it may save you from decisions that will affect your life. Get into the book. Again, you are ignorant of his schemes until you learn. If you try to figure out Satan and his schemes, you'll miss it. This book is never wrong. Come on. This book is never wrong. Parents, you want to save your kids? Get in the book. You want a great marriage manual? Get into the book. You want an integrity manual? Get into the book. You want to see how Satan attacks integrity? Get into the book. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. And that leads us down to the weapons we have. Look what he says in, verse, in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the body, remember what we talked about earlier, though, though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. We can't wage war in an unspiritual way. In other words, when we try to defend ourselves against Satan in the flesh, guess what's going to happen? We're going to lose. If we try to battle Satan using the flesh, we're going to lose. If you think you can resist temptation, you can resist lust, integrity, whatever it is, if you try to do that in your flesh, you're just not that good. You're just not that good. So Paul says we can't wage war in, in an unspiritual, in a fleshly way. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the dem- demolition of strongholds. In other words, Paul says there are weapons that we use to wage war, but they're not of this world. They are, what do he say? They are powerful Through God. Now, I understand books have been written about this. There is certainly room for a series on weapons. But let me give you three of the ones you know, you know, you know. But let me just tell them to you one more time. Weapon number one. Total dependence on God. You, and you know, I know one of our classes is studying the Holy Spirit. That is so awesome. I've been trying to talk about it through this series because I think it's very appropriate. Listen, we have the Holy Spirit. And as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we surrender to the Holy Spirit, as we allow the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as we allow the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, as we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit, as we have the help of the Holy Spirit, it becomes a very powerful weapon against Satan. Amen? 
Now listen, we've got to get over, this is, boy, this is true in every area of our lives. We've got to get over our independence from God. Whether it's giving, serving, living, whatever it is. When you bring God out of the picture and say, I can do, you just made a terrible mistake. Terrible mistake. So have developed, starting today, Dwayne, through this series I've learned, I must be totally dependent on God. There is no independence from God for me. A dependence on God. A dependence on God in prayer. Now, you'd expect me to say prayer, but did you see what I said? A dependence on God in prayer. I honestly believe, as I watch my Savior in the garden, when he says, you know, not my will, but thy will be done, the, greatest po- the power of prayer becomes alive when we as believers say, God, you know better than I do. God, because you, when you say, God, you know better than I do, you're saying, God, I trust you. And whether you're paying about a temptation, whether you're paying about a, a hard situation at work, whether you're talking about your heart is hurt today, you're wounded. Someone took your heart out and stomped it on the ground. It may have been your husband. It may have been your wife. It may have been your child. But when we can go and say, God, this is bigger than me. I can't forgive. I can't let it go. Let it go. I can't let it go. I can't turn it loose. It's bigger than me. God, if it's going to happen, I need you. I'm telling you, there's power. There is power. There is power when we start praying, God, I need you. When we declare our dependence of God, part of your worship and prayer should be, God, I need you today. There's power in that. There's power. And Satan knows that. He wants you to keep praying the little prayers. God is great. God is good. Let us thank us for his food. By his hands we are fed. Thank you, Lord, for our daily bread. See, I was reading a, a devotion um, by Rick Warren. And he said, you know, God doesn't, or excuse me, Satan doesn't fear a perfect person because there's no such thing. But he does feel threatened by a pure heart. Because a pure heart is dependent on God. A pure heart says, can't do it. Can't do it. So develop a prayer life that shouts, that, that shouts your dependence on God. And again, repeating myself, aware of that fact. A discipline in the Word of God. Now, I try to be very transparent with you. For at least the five last years, probably seven, I've read this book cover to cover every year. Okay? Now, here's the the transparent part. Some mornings, I couldn't tell you what I read. I mean, I read it, but I didn't meditate on it. I didn't chew on it. I just read it. When I'm talking about a discipline in the Word of God... I am not talking about the amount of scripture you read. I'm talking about meditating, digesting and ingesting the truth of this book so it it becomes part of your DNA, your spiritual DNA. It's so ingrained in you so that when that temptation comes, not your last thought, but your first thought is the word of God. I love it. it. There's a joke. I don't tell me jokes because I can't. So a guy goes to see a guy in the hospital, you know, and, and the guy's there, and the pastor goes, 
I've come to pray for you. And he goes, oh no, has it come to that? Isn't that how we live though? We, we turn to the word of God at the last moment when nothing else. We turn in prayer when nothing else. We turn to God when nothing else. God says, I don't want to be sixth on your list. I want to be first on your list. And when it comes to the word of God, when we ingest it and, 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 and put it in our lives and our DNA, that's why Jesus said, it's written, it's written. It's just natural for him. He was the living word of God, but, but he had ingested that. So we need to make sure it's part of our DNA. All right, last thing is this. Beware T-O-O. Let me read the scripture to you. This is really good too. And again, look at the clock. We won't spend long. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Those are key words. What is beware T-O-O? Referring to my Air Force career, um, I was not a pilot. I flew a typewriter. Um, but I was in a flying squadron in Germany, and there were two, it's really great, talking about a good assignment. There were two enlisted guys in the whole squadron. Everybody else was pilots, and so they, they treated us like royalty. I mean, it was awesome. But I learned some of the, the, uh, the dialogue and terminology and all that. And we flew OV-10s, which is a, really an observation aircraft, but it had rockets on it. And so when they went in for the briefing, they would say, okay, your, your mission today is this. Da, 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 da. And we were, by, by the way, East Germany in those days. Da, 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 da. And then, as you complete your mission, or when your mission is complete, you are to look for targets of opportunity. T-O-O. And what that simply means is this. Once the mission was complete, or as they did the mission, if they saw something that could be attacked, they had the freedom to attack. It simply meant this. The enemy was going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, don't be a target of opportunity. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Avoid situations where you know you might be tempted or you might give in temptation and sin. Be very careful of that. Now, I love this verse because it doesn't, again, it doesn't approach anything I really talked about today in the sense of sin and temptation. He says, be angry. And do not sin. In other words, there's a kind of anger that's not sin, but you have to be very careful because it's really close. So be angry and do not sin. So be careful as you journey through life. Don't give Satan these opportunities. If, if you fence like you're angry at someone today, okay, isn't an angry that is sin. Be careful of that. Be aware. Don't give Satan. If you have a weakness about gossip, avoid situations there. Don't be a target of opportunity. There's a chance, I tell you, you can be angry and not sin. You know, you can even talk and pray for people without sinning. But it also can turn to a gossip session, can it? In fact, I, check this out. Now, I'm not making a dogmatic statement here, but think about this. Many of the things we do can be sinful if we let them. Is there anything wrong with a piece of pie? Well, not if you're diabetic. I mean, if you're not diabetic. What about if you eat two pies? That might verge on gluttony. Am I right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with eating, but when it's done overboard, it could become a sin. And that's true of a lot of things. Is there anything wrong with watching TV? No, but if you're watching 15 hours a day and you have no time for God or your family, that could become a sin. See what I mean? So, so there's many things. Be angry. Don't let something good turn into a sin. Don't let anything that's, that's neutral be turned into a sin. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Deal with it. Deal with it. 
if, if you're being tempted in an area, deal with it. Again, declare your dependence on God. God, this is something going on in my life. Don't ignore it. It probably won't go away. As long as Satan knows, he can get at you and get at you with that temptation until you, woo, until you close that door. Close that door. That temptation will remain. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with the situation. And don't give the devil the opportunity. If you see a weakness in your area, if you feel a vulnerability in a certain area, avoid that. Avoid that. That is beware T-O-O. So that's it. That's it. Now my question today is this. Over the last five weeks, we have spent very close to, to five hours together in this setting talking about temptation, talking about sin. Are we wiser for it? More importantly than that, will there be a change in our lives? We've come down now to our time of decision. We've come down now where we have opportunity to let God work. And my question is this. What are you going to do and what am I going to do? Because remember, I'm with you. I told you this, this has really impacted my life. What am I going to do with the knowledge that God's word has given me?